just by way of review, in a simple way, just to think about Daniel's life and kind of as we talk about his prayer life today, just to remember a few key things about him, maybe that it's easy to forget, but it's good to bring back to our mind of just who he is. Um, one that I think when you look back over Daniel's, Daniel chapters 1 through 8, you be hard pressed to not say he's a man of integrity. That throughout the whole storyline of Daniel thus far, and he's not trying to prop himself up in the stories he tells about himself, but he's just telling it like it is, that is, he's a man of integrity, that he couldn't be bought, he couldn't be uh, swayed by whatever pressures were around him. And that's really a wonderful way to think about integrity, is all the pressures outside of you that try to change the inside of you. You know, who you want to really be as a person of God, uh, the world's going to come at you from every angle and try to get you to compromise. And you can say clearly from uh, the time we've spent in the book of Daniel so far, he's a man of integrity. And then probably you can build on that and say he's a man of integrity because simply put, he's just a man of obedience. He, he does what the word of God says he should do. Uh, there's no compromise in him because he clearly um, is faithful to obey what he knows from God's word. Where prayer factors into that is maybe where in your own life you could see that, um, you know, you can desire to have integrity and, and you could desire to obey the word. But really the driver underneath that, you know, really what's behind that, I should say, is, is that you have this relationship with God and, and this, this communion with God that really drives your obedience, that you, you, you want to seek him, you want to know him, you want to be close to him. In some ways, you, we, as we've studied before here, John 15, you want to abide with God. You want to abide. And, then, and you could see that the effects of that in Daniel's story, that as a man of integrity, a man of obedience, it's really um, inextricably linked to that he's a man of prayer. Now, where did we see that so far? If you just flip back a few chapters to chapter two, uh, you learn this about Daniel's prayer life, and it's just the action of it. He's a man of instinctual prayer. In chapter two, when King Nebuchadnezzar is flipping his lid over a dream he has, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put him back together again, and he's just going to off with all their heads, and that's the edict across the land, Daniel steps in and steps up and says, can, can you give me a second? I think I can help you with this dream in verse 16. But then in verse 17, what does he do? Does he, does he round up everybody to try to, to come up with the plan and everybody share? No, he goes to prayer. Verse 17 says he gets his friends and asks them to pray that God would show compassion from heaven to concern the mystery. And because of that, Daniel understood what the prayer was or what the vision was and he was able to tell the king. So what we maybe just get from chapter two, a glimpse of his prayer life is he's a man of instinctual prayer. It's the first thing that he's gonna go do when times are tough. Not saying it's the only thing he does, but when you just get that far into the book and his life is on the line, he prays. Right away he goes to prayer. And then he move a few chapters forward, new king, new kingdom. Um, he's serving under King Darius and uh, again, his life is threatened. Nothing new under the sun. Decades later, but here we are under Darius and the Medes and Persians kingdom, and um, Daniel is uh, faced with the idea that there's um, some guys out to get him, and they say, hey, anybody that prays for the next 30 days clearly doesn't want to obey you, King Darius, so uh, make a rule that says they can't make a petition to God in Daniel 6-7, and if they do, they'll be cast into the lion's den. And so King Darius signs the document, makes it the law of the Medes and Persians, can't be revoked. Verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house and continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had done 
previously. So he's not just a man of instinctual prayer. We could add that he's a man of habitual prayer. Now, those are just two kind of descriptions, right? They tell us a little bit about where prayer fit into his life. He was a man whose first instinct was going to be to pray, and then every point along the journey, long into his life, into his time over in Babylon, and now under the instruction and and rule of the Medes and Persians, it's still his habit to pray. But what we get here in chapter 9 that's different is um, we get the privilege to hear his prayer that we didn't get in chapter 2 and we didn't get in chapter 6. We just got the description that he was a man of prayer, habitual, instinctual, but here in chapter 9, you actually get to listen to what he prayed. And from that, I think we can extract out for our own lives uh, inspiration and, and instruction that we would be encouraged in our own lives of prayer to, to follow this as, you know, like any time we find prayer in the Bible, we, we want to be careful not to say, this is the only way to pray you know, maybe taking the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 9 to 11, and saying, okay, that's, no, that, that's one way Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and you can read through the Psalms, and you can see Psalms and wonderful examples of how to pray, and this would line up with the rest of those. So as we go into this text today, I just want to put that caveat at the beginning that this isn't the only way to do it, but if we're going to talk about a prayer life that, that goes to the depths of our soul and reaches to the heights of God's glory, I'd be hard-pressed to find one better than this. Uh, Maybe you could parallel it with Psalm 51, David's prayer of confession. But this this should line up right next to that. So this is a gift to us this morning in our prayer lives, to know that the God of heaven hears and to, to learn and listen in on Daniel's prayer and instruct us. So that's my prayer today, is that our prayers won't be the same as we unfold this and that we would be changed by it. Robert Murray McShane wrote, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. And he's he's not talking about the habitual. He's not talking about the instinctual so much as he's saying, it's when you get on your knees and what comes out, what overflows from what's on the inside. That's who we really are. And so let's uh, jump into Daniel 9 now. I'll just read the first three verses. It's a long passage to kind of set the scene and then we'll walk through it together. Verse 1 of chapter 9 of Daniel, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdoms of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Help us, Lord, to hear from you today and thank you for hearing us. So, first and foremost, let's talk about what prayer is. In today's culture, one way in which prayer is misunderstood, may be no more apparent, at least in the view of secular society, than in in the last 30 years and in what seems to be the endless cycle of the tragedy of mass shootings in the U.S. Perhaps no term has been thrown out in the aftermath of it by anybody more than the term thoughts and prayers. That comes after every one of these things. And 
we may know what we're saying when we say that, but in the eyes of secular society, it's become an infuriating cliche. Because when they read someone in power who they could feel could do something about gun control, somebody in Congress or in the Senate, and they see said individual tweet thoughts and prayers with the victims of, or the families of the victims, it infuriates them because it seems like that's the best you can do in the wake of another tragedy. I saw a headline that really captured this. After the 2015 shooting in San Bernardino, California that took 14 lives, a newspaper put this headline on the front page. God isn't fixing this. As the latest batch of innocent Americans die, cowards who could end this curse continue to hide behind meaningless platitudes. I think that is a picture of what the secular world sees prayer as. A meaningless platitude. Somebody says to make themselves feel better. Some say it is um, performance art. Some do with the wrong motive. Just if I say this, it makes it look like I care and I'll go back to my regular business. Some really mean it from the heart. But I bring that by way of example just to show how prayer is thought about in the eyes of society. What matters today to us is what does the Bible teach us about prayer? It makes us ask the question, what is prayer? What does prayer do? What do we, how do we know it's going to do anything? And thankfully, we have God's word. And today, I think in particular, the, the outline of this section of Daniel's prayer answers those three questions. What prayer is, what prayer does, and what we need to know about it. So let's start with what prayer is. The, the, the time period that kind of sets all this up is right there in verses 1 and 2. There's a new king in town, Darius, and he's of the Median descent. So this is the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, just looking back to last week, this is the ram, the mighty ram that was going west, north, and south, that no other beast could stand before, that Daniel had a vision for while Belteshazzar was still king uh, in chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, now this has come to fruition Medo-Persia is in charge, so it's sometime around, we'll say, 538 B.C. And around that time, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. So just right there, another piece of like, time we have, but now what's, what's Daniel doing? Well, uh, if we wanted to call it what we call it today, he's doing his devotions, good Good little devotion keeper here. He's in the word of God. The scroll, the books are, that would be translated in, in Hebrew scrolls because that's how they carried around their Old Testament. And may that just be a reminder to us the blessing of the printing press in a bound Bible that we can carry in our hands as cumbersome as it might be. You could be carrying scrolls around. And it would take a couple wheelbarrows of scrolls coming into church on Sunday morning, backing it up, and hey, could somebody help me? We're, we're in Daniel today, and I, you know, it's all one scroll, so I need some help here. Or the, the ladies in our church with those really big purses that they could even put babies inside of, out comes the scroll of Daniel. <laughs> Praise God for compact Bibles. Yes. So, He's having his devotions, and he's reading Jeremiah the prophet. And he comes across in year 538 
a passage that really catches his eye, as it should. So let's turn to Jeremiah. But see, if we didn't have our English Bibles with chapters and numbers, we'd have to start at the beginning and just start reading like Daniel would have in his time. And so he's clearly spending some time reading through the book of Jeremiah, which we know from Jeremiah 29, just as quick. How did Daniel get it? Well, Jeremiah, a contemporary of Daniel's, though a bit older, uh, it says in Jeremiah chapter 29, these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priest prophets, that's Daniel, and all the peoples whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So that's how we got it. In the grace of God, there was permission from Jeremiah the, the prophet in Jerusalem who didn't go into exile to send his words of prophecy 800 miles by camel over to Babylon for the people of God there to read. Pretty amazing stuff. So Daniel comes across what we have in our Bibles is chapter 25. What part of the scroll? Who knows? And he reads in Daniel chapter 25 about the life he is living. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah... This was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So Jeremiah is writing chapter 25 back in 605 BC when the first wave of the exile began, likely when Daniel was brought over. And so he's having his devotions and he's reading what is typical prophetic language in Jeremiah 25. It's, it's for all these people that aren't listening to God. Verse four, the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. I tell you to turn from your evil ways and evil deeds and not go after other gods and serve and worship them and provoke me to anger. Yet, verse seven, Jeremiah 25, you've not listened to me, declares the Lord. You've provoked me to anger. Therefore, verse eight, because you've not obeyed my words, I'm sending Neb. That's what he says. I'm gonna send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I'll send Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and bring again them against this land and its inhabitants. Now just stop there. We've made the point before, but it's well to revisit. Nebuchadnezzar isn't on team Yahweh. And yet, Jeremiah, by way of the word of the Lord, calls him my servant. I take these shots when I can get them because they're layups. If what... Putin does really flips your lid. You got to read verses like this and relax. It's okay. There's no person in power on planet earth today who probably had any more power than Nebuchadnezzar at the time and God calls him my servant. Against his will? Probably. Neb was just in it to get some more kingdoms and conquer some more lands. So, I know we might be thinking, oh, the Chinese stole all of our info with that balloon. What are we to do? We're to remember verses like this. China, my servant. Do they follow and love Jesus Christ with their heart, soul, mind, and strength? No more than Nebuchadnezzar did. And yet God is always doing something with every person, especially, especially any person that will set themselves up against Yahweh. And so we can have some comfort to know that 
from all the way back in time here that there is no person in power today or ever that's still not God's servant. Okay, back to the text. So he, he's going to bring Jerusalem over to Babylon. What, look what he says, to utterly destroy them, make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. I'll, I'll take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. There is no more celebration here for you, Israel. I have warned you and warned you and warned you and warned you and you haven't listened. A lot of bad news, right? 6.05 when he writes this. But look at verse 11. That this is what Daniel comes across in his devotion. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. All right. Math people, 70 years, 605 minus 70. Where do we get to? 535 BC. Where does chapter 9 in this prayer begin? 538 BC. Daniel is reading this and is probably like, I, okay, we don't know what he's doing. I mean, we know what he's going to do. But I think he would be pretty excited. You know, when I tell my kids, you know, the other day I told one of them, hey, you know, we're, we're going to the beach this summer in June. Oh, what are the dates, Dad? Oh, can I see the place you rented, Dad? How close to the ice cream shop is it, Dad? And I go back later that evening and he's, you know, got his head behind. He's looking up. He's supposed to be asleep. What are you thinking about? Going to the beach after school's out. How many days? There's that excitement looking forward to this thing. I would imagine back in Daniel chapter nine, after verse two, he would have said, so I threw a party. I got out my shofar and I started playing the final countdown because we're about to go back. Right? We're about to go back. We're, 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 I, the end of this exile is in sight. I believe the promises of God with everything in me. We've seen that in his life. But what does he do? Verse three, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications. And if that isn't enough, it was with fasting sackcloth and ashes. You know, when you read about sackcloth and ashes, it's always connected in the Bible to not a celebration, repentance, confession. What a downer, you would think. This, just on the surface level, blows my mind. You know, you would just think, what, this is time to celebrate, man, and you're going in dust and ashes, and you're, you're going to pray and repent and fast. Come on, man. We're almost there. But here's really what's under the surface of that that should catch our attention today. There's a theology underneath Daniel's actions. And it's the one that we bump up against all the time, isn't it? When Daniel reads a promise of God, which he believes is as sure as the sun coming up. When he believes the promise of Jeremiah 25 and the promise, yes, I know you were all waiting for it, Jeremiah 29. We all know verse 11, 
But the one that would have really fired up Daniel is Jeremiah 29.10. For thus says the Lord, when the 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you, Israel, and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. He believes in the promises of God. He even knows the plan. And he prays. What's the theology there? What's bumping up against each other? The question we answer a lot. God is sovereign and I am responsible. Because has anybody ever asked you in your time as a Christian, if God is sovereign, why do I pray? Now, Daniel doesn't answer that question in the text, but he answers it with his actions, doesn't he? That him knowing the promises of God in Jeremiah, the plan that God has, we'll call that God's providence. It doesn't nullify his responsibility to pray. What does it actually do? We'll see in 14 to 19, it enhances it. It enlivens it. It emboldens it. That the sovereignty of God over the future of Israel, including Daniel, promotes prayer in this brother, does not diminish it. Do we need to remember that often? Whatever promise you come across in the word of God, whatever plan you might think is so close to fruition, should cause you to pray more rather than rest on your laurels. You know, God's sovereign. And that can sometimes be the accusation of, of those that hold to a high view of God's sovereignty. Well, God's so sovereign, all y'all sovereignists, you don't share the gospel, you don't pray, you don't do anything. It's quite the opposite. Knowing the providence of God promotes prayer because you have something truly to bank on about the future. It all doesn't ride on you. But you'll show how much you believe you're still part of it by how you pray. By, by the active role you want to take to get there. I mean, just think back to preaching a few weeks ago on the Great Commission. When you think about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. What's God's sovereign plan for the church in Matthew 16, 18? That Jesus says, I will build my church. What did we leave off with in Matthew 28, 18 to 20? All authority has been given to me. Great, cool. You're going to build your church. Nope. You're going to go make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. But Jesus, you said back then that you'll build your church. So why should I do anything? Because I'm giving you a command. Go make disciples. That's how my church is going to get built. But see, in our, it's hard because these things seem to be, um, well, they, we have to hold them in tension, don't we? And it takes more than just our logic to figure that out. It takes our faith. American novelist of the early 1900s wrote The Great Gatsby, F. Scott Fitzgerald, famously wrote, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. It's pretty good. 
But see, that can promote a little bit of pride in us. Like, oh, I can hold intention, God's sovereignty and my responsibility. I must be, as Fitzgerald says, highly intelligent. So I said, you know, that's a cool statement. I like it, but I want to theologize it. So I changed it up as it applies to matters at hand. The test of a first-rate biblical intelligence is the humility, not the ability, to hold two opposing ideas in mind at the same time and still retain your responsibility to pray. That's what we do with God's sovereignty and our responsibility. It's our biblical intelligence. What we can understand from the scripture then causes us in our humility to hold those in tension and still fulfill our responsibility to pray. Daniel's understanding of God's plan to restore Israel from Babylon is promoting greater prayer. And how does that prayer start? And where do we get our answer for what is prayer? Right there in verse three. I love Bible definitions for what things are rather than having to, Adam, what's, what's a good definition for what is prayer? Here's what prayer is. I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him. There's your definition for what prayer is today. So now you can just, Say it straight from the word of God. Prayer is, at its heart, giving the attention of your heart to seek God. That's what prayer is. You're trying to seek him. You're not necessarily trying to seek an answer, trying to change the future, trying to... No. Fundamentally, prayer is what Daniel said he was doing here. I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer. You know, what's interesting is whether or not he borrowed that from his buddy Jeremiah, reading Jeremiah 29, 13, right after he reads that the plans that God has is to bring Babylon back. Listen to verse 12 and 13. I wonder if this is what promoted the prayer. He immediately went from what he saw in the word of God to action. Jeremiah 29, 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Does that sound like prayer? That's at least the very passion of our prayer, isn't it? You will seek God and you'll find him because he's not playing hide and seek with us when you search for him with all your heart. So there's no genie in a bottle. There's no treasure map to this thing. It's very straightforward. There, there's no rote thing I've got to memorize to have a prayer life. I've got to fundamentally, in my heart, want to seek God. And so I pray. And that's how Daniel prayed. So maybe my first question for us today is, is that not how you pray, but is this why you pray? Do you pray to seek God? Period. I guess, question mark. But is that why? We haven't gotten to the how, but the why. Do I pray first and foremost to seek God with all my heart? There's many other reasons to pray, but this is the top one. Seeking after God with all of our heart, giving God the attention of our heart, which is harder today than maybe it's ever been. So that's why it really matters that we get the 
what prayer is and why we do it right. So that we know this, this is going to be a battle. This, this is going to be an effort to put away all the distractions of life and say, God, I'm getting on my knees right now to seek you. And I don't know exactly where this time of prayer might be going, but I'm seeking you in it. Now, from the next section on uh, what prayer does, we do get a little bit of a direction from it. Verse four, so I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said. So just piecing that out, that he prayed to the Lord and confessed and said. So there's a few dimensions to this that he just kind of puts right away to ask, well, what does prayer do? Well, it does a few things. And some of us learned it growing up, you know, acts, adore, or adoration, confession, uh, thanksgiving, supplication. And, you know, I was taught that in high school and, you know, there were reasons behind it. You know, you want to put supplication last because you don't just want to come asking things to God right away. And that's all well and good. But again, just following the script from Daniel, hey, adoration, yeah, right there, first on the list. Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, there's your adoration. What does prayer do? It first adores God. It looks up. That, that's the simple way to say it. Because when we're coming to God to seek after him in prayer with all of our heart, whatever is on our heart, whatever was on Daniel's heart, whatever is on your heart, it's easy to keep our head down. Now, when we pray, we do put our head down oftentimes, but we keep it down on the physical level, but not on the spiritual level. When my head's down, I'm looking up and I'm seeing a great God and an awesome God. And that's what's going to start my prayer life. Why do I need that? I need a great God, a strong God, a mighty to save God, a powerful God, the one that I can say, no matter what's going on right now, God, you are able. I'll admit that. You are able. That's what calling on this great God does. Second, I need an awesome God, which yeah, I'm saying you're able, you're powerful, you're mighty, you're strong, but you're an awesome God, which is him saying, I stand in awe of you. I fear you. So you're able, and I know you're good, and you're holy, and you're amazing. I just, I don't know what you're going to do with that ability. I don't know if you're going to say yes or no, but you're awesome, regardless of what you tell me, regardless of what comes of it tomorrow. You're a great God. You're able and you're an awesome God. I, I trust you're willing because you're good, because you're holy. I just don't know if it's going to be in your wisdom to say yes. And that's, that's where adoration starts, looking up in our hearts. And then he even start, talks about not just these words that describe God, great and awesome, but what does he say? What, what, not just who he is, but what he's done. He keeps his covenant and loving kindness. And maybe that's uh, you know, when we're talking about he's both willing and able, why do you think he's able? Because he keeps his covenant and, and loving kindness to his children, those who love him and keep his commandments. This is just who he is. He's a covenant-keeping God. He keeps his promises. He makes them, he keeps them. That word loving kindness in other translation is steadfast love or covenant of love. or It's really the idea of a loyal love from a greater to a lesser. You know, that, that God is the greater, we're the lesser. And that we know he has all power and authority and it's totally up to him. And so 
what do we come to? We say, you're the one who is a faithful covenant-keeping God, and I can look back on your actions in the past and in your loving kindness see that you have never left me. And Daniel knew that even though Israel was in exile, God had never left them. He's the one that actually put them there. We saw that at the beginning of Daniel chapter 1, didn't we? That God gave them over to Babylon. So in saying he's, he's loving kind, it's this word for loyal love. And if you want to just underline that word loving kindness or steadfast love in whatever translation you have, and then in the margin write, gospel of the Old Testament. Anytime you come across loving kindness or steadfast love, the writer is talking about the gospel that they understood, which is God first loved me. I didn't first love him. Isn't that the gospel, friends? That we recognize that God so loved the world that he sent his only son? Not that we cleaned ourselves up and picked ourselves up and did it. No, no, no. The steadfast love of God that that gets praise and adoration in, in Daniel's prayer is the love that first comes towards the sinner from God, from the greater to the lesser. So that's adoration. But next, we move into his confession, which takes up verses 5 to 14. What prayer does? It adores God. It praises him. And then after looking up, then it looks in. And um, what does it see? Well, we're going to see what Daniel said about what he saw. I won't try to say that fast. But 5 to 14 is a confession, and it's, it's lengthy, and there's, there's some repetition in it. But as I went through it this week and tried to find some hooks to hang my thoughts on, I came away with these three words, and, and you, can, you can put these as sub-points under con- what is confession. Um, well, confession is just a full accounting of my life before God. You know, I'm just, I'm just looking at the whole thing. But it really, if you want to try to break it into some headings... It's, it's um, uh, width, depth, and truth. And I'll explain as we go. But this is, again, Ashoff's laying something over top of this just to try to understand where Daniel's going with this prayer. So our confession has some width or some breadth, if you want to call it that. Look at verse 5. He's trying to say in his confession, look, we have <laughs> there's, a, there's a width, there, there's a, a wide swath of ways that we've sinned, looking back. And notice how much we language, by the way. So this isn't Daniel just pointing the finger at Israel. This is him saying, I'm with it. I'm, I'm one of these people. These are my people. He loves these people. That's how he was so torn up at the end of chapter eight, wasn't he? Sick for days. He, he just knew the future of Israel was gonna be hard. He had a burden for God's people. So he's with them. And he said, we have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have acted wickedly. We have rebelled. We have even turned aside from your commandments and ordinances. Verse 6, moreover, we haven't listened to your servants, the prophets. What's he doing? It's a wide swath of all the ways in which we have sinned against you, God. And he just, you could go through these. I went through them just trying to get the original sense out of the Hebrew. And, and here's what I came away with. When you're saying we have sinned, just that first one, in the width of our confession, it's admitting we missed the mark. That's what the basic word for we have sinned means in your Bible in the Old Testament. When you see that simple word sin, it's a missing the mark. And that's a helpful way to think of something, a picture, isn't it? It's a target and it's a standard and it's outside of me and I shot for it and I Missed it. Shooting a bow and arrow the other day with my kid. Got it for him for Christmas. There's the target. 
arrow into the siding of the house. But this is you know, a safe one, so it bounces off. Just missed the mark. Why? The standard's outside of us. It's God's standard. It's the gold standard. Why do we need that today when we're confessing our sin? Because we tend to relativize, maybe. The, the, the culture wants us to relativize our sin. Oh, you're not as bad as that person. You're better than them. Don't be so hard on yourself. The standard in the culture today, and even in our twisting of sin, wants us to just look around and not look up and say the standard is God's standard. And so when you break his standard, you've sinned because that's the only one that matters, is it? Who cares what everybody else's is? What's God's standard from his word? So we've sinned. Standard outside of me. But committed iniquity, problem inside of me. Why do I say that? Because in the Hebrew, the, the word means a twisting or a bent up of something. We're twisted on the inside. The standard we miss on the outside is just evidence that on the inside we are bent. We are twisted by our sin, by our, by our hearts that Jeremiah 17 says are what? Really wicked. Who can understand them, Jeremiah says. And, and that's that, and that image of just picture your heart so twisted up by sin that it's, it's hard at times to kind of undo that thing when you're really being honest before God, right? And you're trying to get to the heart of the issue. God, why did I get angry there? What's underneath all of that? And you're confessing it. You're saying, I've, I'm twisted on the inside. Early church father Augustine uh, said it's man's heart curved in on itself. That's, that's, that was the, the, the way that the early fathers thought about our sin problem. We become curved in on ourselves. Why? Because we love ourselves, And so... We miss the standard outside of ourselves and God because we created in ourselves and that's where the twisting is. In the, in the word of God, untwists us. And we have to confess where that happens in our life. Luther wrote, Scripture describes man as so curved in on himself. This is him taking Augustine's words. He says, Scripture describes us as so curved in on ourselves that we use not only physical but even spiritual good for our own purposes and in that seek only ourselves. He's talking about religious people. And he's not just talking about everything around us and outside of us. He's saying we even take spiritually good things and we're so curved in that we use those spiritually good things and turn them for our own glory. So we take some opportunity to serve um, or read our Bible or pray and still then in, that, in the desire to do something good spiritually, there's something in us saying, you know, if you, um, if you just go and read your Bible in that one part of the house where you know, you know people walk by, they'll see you. Well, because you want glory. Or you know if you go and serve at that thing even though you really don't want to. And you've been serving more than everybody else. But see, then, you know, you're better than everybody else because you're the one who keeps showing up to serve. Maybe somebody will finally recognize you for how great of a servant you are. Who wants the glory in that moment? You do. And that's the point of this committing iniquity. It's, it's not just the standard we miss outside of ourselves; It's the standard that's twisted inside of us. And then he says we've uh, acted wickedly. Um, usually when that word wickedness is used in the Old Testament, it's connected to being condemned and guilty. So it says that not only a problem we're missing on the outside of us, God's standard, we're twisted on the inside, that this then means we are guilty. We act wickedly. 
and we rebel. And then he further defines rebellion, turning aside from God's commandments. There's a good definition. What does it mean for us to rebel against God? When we turn aside from his commandments. And then Daniel adds even furthermore in verse 6, when somebody comes along to try to help us, we don't listen to the one trying to help us, the prophet back then. And so he says, look, as wide as I can paint the picture, we miss the mark. We're twisted on the inside. We act wickedly and deserve punishment, and we rebel against the standard of God and those who preach that God, the word of God. We, just the whole panorama of our plight is sin that needs confessed. Whew. We still have a ways to go. But maybe it's good at just this moment to remember what the word of God is here to do for us. Hebrews, 12, or Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than a sword and it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And here's what we need to hear in these hard moments of a sermon. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Look, when I chose to preach Daniel months back, I had no idea this is in chapter nine. My motive wasn't, man, my church really needs a boom. And I'm gonna get the chapter nine and give it to them. But God knew you needed to be here on this day and hear this sermon about what it means to really confess your sin. And of all places, in Daniel, in chapter nine, in a prayer. And so when sermons like this Hit us hard. Just know that this is part of the process God's word is meant to do in us. It's his plan for us. So that's the width. Now let's talk about the, breadth, the depth of confession. And really you see that in verses 7 to 10. As in he wants to show the depths of our sin as opposed to the heights of God in his righteousness. And so you hear it right there in verse 7. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame. Do you see the, the difference between the heights of God and his righteousness and the depths of Daniel and him talking for Israel and the shame that they deserve? He's drawing a contrast, as we should. When we're confessing, we're not just trying to look at the scope of our life and all the different ways we can sin, but then it's meant to show us the, the great divide, that chasm that we sang about. O Lord, our living hope. That's a, it's a... It's a, it's a chasm that we can't do anything about. Why? Because at the height of heights is the righteousness that only belongs to God. And then there's us. who What belongs to us? Open shame. Verse 7. Verse 8. Open shame. But what belongs to God? Righteousness. Verse 7. Verse 9. Compassion and forgiveness. And so when we're confessing the depths of our sin, what are we really doing? We're just, as we seek God, rehearsing and reminding our own hearts how much of a difference there is between our holy God and us. Which produces brokenness, doesn't it? It produces humility. We, we, when you see the distance between you and somebody really great at the thing you want to be great at, you can go one of two ways. You can lie to yourself and be like, I mean, he's not so good. Patrick Mahomes, I throw passes to my kids all the time in the yard, sideways, 360 spin behind the back. I mean, how hard it would it be to do on a Sunday with a 300-pound guy chasing me? But I could lie to myself and think, yeah, 
Or I could be honest with myself and see the great distance between me and greatness. And, and that's what this confession is meant to do in 7 through 10, is just to say, look, here's what we deserve, God. Open shame, because we're the ones who sinned. Here's what you deserve. You are righteous. You are compassionate. You are forgiving. That's why all praise and honor and glory go to you. Because prayer, again, isn't some rote, here's the confession to say. It's, here's the way your heart is to go. It's to go up and see him in his righteousness and to look down and see us in our shame. And that's what Daniel does in those verses. And the one thing I want to highlight in, our, in the depths of our confession is what you see repeated in 7, 8, and 9, that the primary person, not the only person that we've offended, because sin does often have what? Collateral damage. We sin and it hurts and affects other people. I, it's hard to think of a sin you could commit that's not going to hurt somebody that's in proximity to you. Even if it's a heart attitude, that, that's going to come out and affect somebody around you. That's why we don't just deal with behavior on the outside. Be a better person. Don't be mean to your sibling. Get to the heart of the issue. Do you really love your sibling? That's what's going to eventually show itself and hurt somebody in your life. So look at the three things repeated. The end of verse 7, the unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. End of verse 8, because we've sinned against you. Verse 9, for we have rebelled against him. That repetition is to seal it in our hearts of confession in the depths of it that our problem is primarily with sinning against God. And after we deal with that, how much more effective will it be for us to deal with the sin we commit against others? Just really let that one hit you right now. If you don't really deal with your sin before God, so then when you flip the script over to Matthew, and he's talking about logs in your eye and specks in someone else's, you see the connection? When you really see that you have sinned and what you've done and you go to God with it, that's him helping you remove the log that then you can go to clearly talk to this other person about the thing that you were ready to just rush into and tell them where they were wrong and you're in a conflict right now and you're going to point the finger at them and you're going to get into that discussion you do with your spouse all the time and just when you think it's going to go different, what pops up in your heart? But you did this. But what about? So did you really deal with your sin then before God? Because if you did, it would pull that out of there and it would put it in front of you and you would see it and say, yeah, it's me and I sinned against you. And now that we've worked that out, God, I can go and talk to them. So that's part of the confession, the depths of it. And where does it leave us? When you, when you, when you add a, a wide look at our sin and then a deep dive into it, you get to where verses 11 through 14 leaves us, which is the truth about it. The truth about the sin of Israel was they got what they deserved. That's the summary of verses 11 to 14. And you could hear it repeated again because Daniel's repeating himself. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside and not obeyed your voice, so the curse has been poured out on us. The oath which was written in the law of Moses, verse 10, he repeats it again in verse 13. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. What's, what's he talking about Moses for? Because in the end of Deuteronomy, the covenant that God was making with that next generation of the Israelites, was it's clear you guys have sinned, and I'm just laying it out, God was saying to them. If you obey, if you keep your end of the covenant, look, all the blessings will be added to you in, in chapters 28, 28. But if you don't, you'll get all the cursings of disobedience. And here's some warnings that God gave the Israelites back in Deuteronomy 28. 
25, the Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them and you'll flee seven ways before them. That's what happened that leaves Israel in exile generations later. How about this curse? In verse 32, your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and yearn for them continually and there will be nothing you can do. That's what happened when they were taken into exile. Some were left behind. Some of the, remember the beginning of Daniel? What did they want? They wanted the youngest and the strongest and the best looking. How many grandparents were sitting back there left behind in Jerusalem? And if they would have known this verse and said, this is on us. My grandkids getting taken away to exile because of my disobedience. Verse 45, so all these curses shall come on you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. So there is that last aspect. When you go wide and you look deep, then you come to the truth about your situation. And that's where Daniel ends up in 11 to 14. All these calamities have come on us God confirmed his word. Verse 13, all this calamity has come on us, yet we still have not sought the favor of the Lord our God. Verse 14, therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. Let me summarize this. What Daniel is saying at this moment in confession of going through the width and the depth to bring him to the truth of the situation for Israel is this. We are not in exile because God broke his promise but because he kept it. So you're not where you are because God broke some promise to you today. But you are in the situation you're in because he's keeping it. And that's the most honest thing you can say about yourself from the word of God. I, as a believer, as a child of God, God is faithful to keep his promise to me. He's not leaving me. He's not letting me go. Nobody can snatch me out of his hand. So whatever thing I'm in right now is by his doing. And if it feels like chastising, if it feels like discipline, that's God's faithfulness. That's not his broken promise. Going back to You're the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. So can you look at your life today and say, and maybe you're saying it through tears. I don't like what I'm in, but this is you keeping your promise to me. Thank you. I needed this. You weren't gonna let me stay where I was at. Living the life I was living. Not if I'm your child. You'll break me down because you're faithful. And that's what being wide and deep and honest does for you. It allows you to be honest before God. That's what confession's for. Now this could leave you at a really tough spot. You don't know where to go. So what am I supposed to do? Wallow in misery? No. Is there something you need to know? There's something prayer knows. There's something Daniel knows here in 15 to 19 that we need to know when we get to this point in our confession. If we've been honest before him, 
So what could I possibly ask of him? Because when you get to that point of being raw and honest and transparent before God, what could I possibly ask for him? Exactly. That's what 15 and 19 is. Look where Daniel's words go. Oh, oh God, you brought your people out. You've, you've rescued people before. People in a situation as bad as Israel had it in Egypt. You saved them with a mighty hand. So I'm just calling upon your faithfulness. In verse 16, in accordance with your righteous acts. Okay, I admit it. I've screwed up. Israel, we're busted. I'm busted. But I know you're righteous, so... You can turn your anger and wrath away from your people, your, your holy city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, your people. We've become a reproach to people around us. We have tarnished your name. I'm owning it. So verse 17, so now listen to the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And here's what prayer knows when you get to the point of supplication. Act for your sake, O Lord, not for mine. If I'm your child and I represent your name, then do something about me for your glory. That's what prayer knows. That's where your petition comes from. Work in me for your glory. Because I can't work it for myself. And this is what the heart of the gospel is in verse 18. When you come to that point of brokenness, and this is not just for an unbeliever, this is for a believer, verse 18. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation in the city which is called by your name. What do I have to offer you now? What can I ask of you? Nothing. We're not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own. But on account of your great compassion. Believer, this is the gospel for you today. You don't come back to God cleaning yourself up any more than you came to him in the first place needing to clean yourself up. You, as Daniel is praying, are coming back saying, with all of what I see in my life, there is nothing that I can offer that would account to my credit. That's what he means by merit. The only credit I have is the credit of your compassion to me. Thank you. Because that's all we have. It's all we have is the credit of the righteous life of Christ that we come back into the presence of God confessing and asking because of what he did, not what we did. This is the gospel according to Daniel. This is the gospel according to the Old Testament. And this is the gospel according to Jesus Christ. Right there in Daniel 9.18. And there is no better gospel than this. We are not coming before God ever on the account of our own merit, that we earned something, that we did something to deserve something other than his wrath. We come on the merit of someone else. Now, all Daniel can know at this point in his life was it's not my merit, it's because of your great compassion or love. Whose could it be? Well, we know today whose it is. We know something that Daniel didn't know. Imagine that. It's the righteous merit of Jesus Christ 
that we come back to God again and again and again as Christians. So when you sin and you feel in the dumps and you are in the dregs, whatever you do, don't take the, the, the self-righteous path back to God, which is, you know what, I did it again, but I promise I'll have a good week of devotions and then I'll pray. Is that how we come back to him? No, it's not. We come back saying what Daniel prayed here. I'm coming back to you because you're my compassionate, loving, forgiving father. So I'm not cleaning myself to come back. Only Christ can. If you're an unbeliever here today, there's no news like this. Nobody accepts you like this. In every relationship you have, there has to be some amount of give and take, some merit, something that somebody requires. Nobody would just sit around and let you walk all over them like this, disregard them like this, rebel against them like this. And of all people that God would. And then on top of it all, out of love, send a son to die for you. And what's required of you other than to admit, 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 you need Christ. You might be an unbeliever sitting here next to a person who loves you and brought you because they want you to believe. And you can have a discussion with them on the way home. And you could say, let's clear some accounts. As an unbeliever, you could sit there and say, I lied this week. How are you any different from me? And if they're honest with you, they'll say, I lied this week. And you as an unbeliever can say, I was prideful this week. And if they're being honest, they'll say, I was prideful this week. And you as an unbeliever can say, I got angry this week. And they'll say, I got angry this week, if they're honest. And you can go down the list and you will be a perfect match as a sinner. And so then you'll turn to that person and say, so what makes any difference between me and you? Because we're committing all the same sins. And their only response will be Christ. That I recognize all these sins. And because he died in my place, they're forgiven. That's the difference between you and me. But other than that, I'm no better. And in some aspects, I might be worse. Because I'm rebelling against the one who gave his son to die for me. So take that. So if you're not in Christ today, that's the difference between you and anybody in this room. You're just the sinner who hasn't seen his need to be forgiven. But God offers you forgiveness in Christ today. Will you take it? Will you come to him? Because it's about his glory. He's glorified in bringing sons and daughters into his family. I mean, that's the heart of verse 19. That's the end of it. This is all for God's glory. Look at his, look at his words in verse 19. For your sake, O oh my God, don't delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. All of it's for him. All of it's for his glory. Not to us, not to us, but to your glory. And God could even be glorified when we, his children, come back to him and again and again and say, I need your son again. Admitting our own need. And, and how, how better of a way to, to prepare our hearts for communion today than to have a sermon like this that pretty much said all that.
So I'm going to pray and the band's going to come up. And then rather than me right away lead us through a time of reflection, I would just ask you to reflect on what you've already heard today. And ask the questions, maybe out of, in light of this sermon. One, have I treated my sins too lightly lately? I mean, you see how Daniel's treating his sin here in confession. And maybe you need to ask that before the Lord. Have I treated my sin too lightly today? Or you might ask, hey, I, I, I see it, I know it. Then ask your heart the question, have I thought about God's forgiveness too little? Because you know, the problem for some of us is not thinking upon our sin and seeing our depravity. Sometimes we, we just get stuck there in our own shame and guilt and think too little of his grace. And that's what this is about. How could you think little upon the grace and forgiveness of God when you know he gave his life for you in Jesus Christ? His body was broken and his blood was poured out. So maybe you've thought too little on your sins and now you've seen today the vast amount of them. But then don't stop there. Go all the way. Go all the way and bring them to Christ and see that he can account for every single one of them. Don't think little of the grace of God this morning to you, sinner. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that corporately we can confess as Daniel was doing with Israel, we in the church can have mornings where we confess our great need. And when we do that, we absolutely see that there's nothing we've done to earn merit, to earn your favor. We have cast ourselves completely on the love that you have had for us in Christ and sending him to die. And so what a wonderful way for us to meditate this morning as we approach the Lord's table so that we could take it rightly that we don't take our sin too lightly this morning, but how much more that we don't take your grace too lightly. We thank you for this this morning, Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen.